I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. Welcome back, uh, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. I uh, have a, a really fun one today. I have Rob Normando. Rob is uh, the president of C4 Capital, which is a private equity uh, firm based in Halifax. And prior to uh, co-founding C4 in 2012, he was president of Clark Incorporated, which is a TXS-listed uh, company. And before that was a Toronto lawyer. So that would be very interesting to see how, uh, how, how that happened. And Rob holds a Bachelor of Arts degree from... Uh, Western, which is also my alma mater, and uh, an MBA from the University of Toronto, a law degree from the University of Toronto. That's a, that's a mouthful. That's a lot of education. <laughs> so, uh, Rob, really, uh, really appreciate you uh, you joining me. My pleasure, Lon. So, so, Rob, just to start, maybe just give people, and I, I, I usually start at the beginning, but for those that don't know uh, what Seafort uh, Capital is, just give, give people uh, kind of the Coles notes. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. So Seaford is it's an interesting time for us because we're evolving. We are, as you said, a private equity firm based in Halifax. So we take majority positions in private companies and partner with entrepreneurs to help them grow and and hopefully succeed. Um, originally in 2012, when we were formed, we had two main investors that were backers of, of the fund. One was members of the Sobe family and other was members of the McCain family, both uh, you know, sort of wealthy families based in Atlantic Canada. And uh, the plan was always to grow and develop and build a track record and build a portfolio of investments and ultimately get to the point where we can open up to something more like a conventional private equity firm to a broader base of investors. And that's where we are now. We're, we're raising our second fund. We've called that first series of investments fund one, although it was structured a little bit differently. And we've been out raising capital for the last year or so getting very close to our goal. So our goal is to get to $160 million of committed capital. We're just about there. We haven't announced our final closing, but uh, we have a hard cap of 200. So there's a chance that we'll keep fundraising past that $160 million goal. But in the last couple of weeks, we've been active out in the market looking for investment opportunities and sort of have gotten traction on a couple. So we're excited to change gears and go from sort of fundraising for, for that new fund and start deploying capital. Fundraising sucks. <laughs> I know it's a necessary evil and it's something that I do quite often, but uh, I don't know about you, but I don't enjoy it. No, and, and it's not really my skill set, honestly. I mean, I'm more of uh, the type that likes to get involved in uh, strategy and operations and work with the, you know, the, the people that are active in the business. And so when you're, as you know, fundraising is a sales function and you're selling yourself and your track record and, and, and you're saying the same thing again and again and again. So for this fund, you know, we've had literally hundreds of, of meetings where you've gone out and done the same presentation and staying enthusiastic and, and fresh is, is a challenge for sure. I mean, it, it is easier doing a virtual, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, it, it, it has been a lot of time. It has been for us and, you know, being based in Halifax, um, you know, we, we certainly have investors here. We're fortunate to have investors in the region, but a lot of the people that we want to speak with are outside of the region. And so, you know, puts us on a bit of a, level footing with others when we can do it digitally. So that has actually helped us. You're right. So, so Rob, I see Halifax, Toronto, London, you know, in your background, but where, where did it all get started? So I grew up in Sarnia, Southwestern Ontario, uh, went to Western because that was the nearest university to, to where I grew up. Uh, but yeah, Sarnia is my hometown. 
Got it. And, and what did your what did your childhood look like? I grew up uh, youngest of four kids. My dad was a boilermaker, so that's a common vocation in in the Sarnia area. You've got the refinery there and a lot of chemical, uh, you know, foundries and other sort of industrial type employers. My mom was home most of the time. She worked at a high school cafeteria as well. But, uh, you know, I didn't know, you know, growing up, I had a sense that I wanted to get into business, but I didn't really have a lot of mentors or direct contacts in law or in business. But I remember going to the uh, high school guidance counselor, and this is in an age where, as you'll probably recall, it was harder to get information. You couldn't just Google something. You had to go and ask people or go to the library. And so as weird as weird that sounds to some people. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember, you know, we used to argue, used to argue sort of mundane trivia for, for hours and hours. Right now, there's no such thing as arguing. You just Google it and you find out who's right. Usually we were both wrong. But no, I went to, um, you know, you went to the high school guidance counselor and said, look, I want to make as much money as I possibly can. What are the, you know, what are the paths I should think about for studies? And and uh, that, that guidance counselor said, well, given sort of courses you've taken, I would suggest law and business. And that was sort of, once I got pointed in that direction, that's, that's where I went. So, you know, you grew up pretty, I guess, in a, you know, a blue collar family, you, you know, you probably saw your parents working hard, you know, small city, didn't have a lot of exposure. When, when were your eyes really opened? I mean, I know going to Western is probably a bit of a, a culture shock. It, it was. And, you know, I, I so as I said, I went to Western because of proximity. It's a good school, has a good reputation. But, you know, there were a lot of uh, people from Toronto coming from, you know, from money, frankly. And so that was uh, it was eye opening, as you say. I, I enjoyed it. It was a great uh, place to study. I was in an interesting program. I did a program called Scholars Electives. And so I was able to take courses from any faculty just as, as long as you did well, you could sort of stay in that stream and, and pick your own curriculum, which was which was great because uh, when I got into the law and business stream, I really had no electives. So I was very structured and had to only take those courses that were sort of prescribed. And so having had that liberal education at Western as a as a foundation was very helpful. But I, I enjoyed Western. I mean, it was certainly different from Sarnia. Um, and uh, but in a good way, it was uh, an opportunity to make new friends and meet new people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, still a big part of my network comes from my university days. I think that hindsight is always 2020. But I think that a lot of, uh, you know, college university students don't realize how formative those years are. And, um, you know, I think most people who, who have had a good experience during that time of their year, that time of their life, I think of you know a lot of their successes and and, and from their network, etc., come from from those days. Yeah, and and it's funny how time flies. You know, those those days are you know really formative and they stick with you. I've got three kids, and two of my kids are in university now, and and it's shocking. You know, sometimes you sit sit down with your wife on the couch and say, "How did it go so quickly?" You know, it seems like we were in university not that long ago, but uh, of course we weren't. As I get older, I feel like time goes quicker, which is quite unfortunate. <laughs> But, uh, you know, when you're when you're have a full time job and, you know, I'm, I'm a father, I'm a father of two. So I'm a, uh, a glorified chauffeur at, at the best of times. You know, day, days go very quickly. Yeah, I, I've heard it said that uh, when you're a parent, the days are long, but the years are short. I think there's a lot of truth. Yeah, there. very, very true. So so you're at Western, you, you know, you want to want a business. You land up in arts. You're, you're happy for that experience. You know why? Like the MBA makes a lot of sense to me. But well, where, where did the law degree come in? You know, I didn't, you know, as I said, I didn't have a lot of mentors. I didn't know a lot of people in the field, but it seemed to me like um, an exciting sort of path. You know, the opportunity to study law and, and to get a designation uh, was, was I thought it would be challenging and interesting and had the opportunity to register at University of Toronto in their combined program, which was, um, you know, I thought it was uh, a great opportunity and it turned out to be a great opportunity. So 
it was a challenging program, but it was it had a at the time, and I think still has a bit of cachet. And so, being able to sort of register for that program and, and complete it was I saw it as a bit of a challenge and and something that I really enjoyed. So, I didn't plan to practice law really when I was doing that program. I wanted to get admitted and and, and then sort of move on. But I enjoyed it and stuck with it longer than I expected because it was um, you know frankly it was a better experience than I was expecting. So, so as you as you alluded to, you did land up practicing law, and I mentioned that on the uh, you know at the beginning of the podcast. Did you think you were going to leave law? Like, well, 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 when did that transition happen? Yeah, I mean, I used to always joke that I, since I studied law, I wanted to get uh, admitted, do my articles, and get admitted so that my mom could tell the the ladies at Bingo that her son was a lawyer, and then I would move on to business, which I thought was more interesting. I did my articles at Tories, which is a great firm. Was very fortunate to land a spot there. Had an awesome experience. Uh, and then sort of as soon as I got admitted, had an opportunity to join a big U.S. firm in their Toronto office. So, pra- you know, practiced, wrote the New York State bar exam, practiced U.S. law for four and a half years. And that went by really quickly. It was really enjoyable. We were busy. It was a busy sort of cross-border corporate finance and M&A practice, worked with lots of exciting companies. You know, RIM at the time was was uh, sort of cutting edge technology. They were a client. We had Air Canada, Audash, you know, lots of great companies. And so... That time went really quickly, but I my plan was always to do it for another six months or another year. And I just sort of kept going for four and a half years until I had an opportunity to, to get a senior role in business, really, which is what, what uh, prompted me to leave law. So you got this opportunity, you moved over, it was a publicly listed company, correct? That's right. How did that happen? And how was that transition? And, and did you enjoy the experience? I did enjoy the experience. So, you know, Clark was, an, was a company that... Um, was a single industry business that was looking to develop into an investment company. And that sounds strange now, but it was a company that owned a freight business, a full load and intermodal trucking business, you know, one of CN's largest national partners. But the gentleman that was president at the time wanted to build it into something broader that would make sort of more investments. And so I joined. Uh, my background was useful, you know, having done capital markets work, especially on the US side. If you think about that environment in 2005 when I joined, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley rules from the U.S. were being adopted for the most part in Canada. And so having experience practicing law and raising capital on, on U.S. markets ended up being really relevant to Canada and Canadian markets. We raised, you know, within 14 months of me joining, we raised $185 million through the issuance of two convertible debenture raises, which I was deeply involved in. And that capital really allowed Clark to transition from being a trucking company to, a, to an investment holding company. So, so why did you leave? Uh, well, I left. I was at Clark for seven and a half years. The last three and a half years I was there, I was president. As I said, a wonderful experience. Sometimes I feel like I got you know 21 years of experience in seven years because there was a lot of things going on. Ultimately, the returns during that period when I was president were strong. But you know, I determined that what I really liked was the things that didn't have a lot to do with the public markets, capital markets side of the uh, of the business. So as president, you know, you spend a lot of time on reporting, on governance, on sort of what you might call administrative and, and, and accounting things. And I didn't mind those, but what I really enjoyed was working with the businesses and making investments and building, you know, building uh, growth stories and having the opportunity to do that in a private equity environment allowed me to do all the things I liked and, and avoid many of the things I didn't like. And so, you know, that's really where I got the idea to go out and sort of pitch the families in 2012 on the, you know, on a private equity firm. 
yeah, you, you couldn't pay me to be a public market executive. That being said, they wouldn't pay me to do it. So <laughs> I think it's, I think we're safe on both sides. So, so you mentioned. Yeah. I mean, if, you, if you need access to the cat, I mean, there's a lot of great reasons to be public. And if you're, if you're in an industry where you need tons of capital and when, where you've got a team built to sort of, to, to, to access the capital markets and take advantage of your public listing, then I think it makes a lot of sense. But from my perspective, the fit was much better in, in a private equity structure. Totally agree. There's, there's a lot of reasons to be public, but for me, that's, that's not where I could spend my time. So, so you left in 2012. You obviously mentioned that you, you partnered with two, you know, very well-known families and obviously moved to Halifax. I mean, that's a, that's a big change. Yeah, well, Clark, I should say Clark was based in Halifax. Oh, so, so you big, moved there at that point? Yeah, okay. yeah moving my family uh, to Halifax happened when I joined Clark. And it was a unique opportunity, really. You know, what I saw as was an opportunity to join at a senior level at an investment company, what became an investment company very quickly. So, you know, that's really what drew me to Halifax. And, and you know, once we got here, my wife absolutely loved it. When we came, we had a four-year-old and a two-year-old and, a, and an, in, an infant, a two-week-old. And so all my kids were raised here. You know, if, if I had thought about leaving to set up a private equity firm outside of Halifax, you know, after eight it's years there, yeah, yeah. Would have, they would have, they, they just would have had a revolt. I mean, my wife loves it here and it's been a great place to raise a family. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, it sounds like a, I'm sure a lot of people are listening to this and saying, you know, it sounds like a perfect situation. You're dealing with two very well-known, you know, high net worth families. You don't have to deal with, you know, hundreds of, of different LPs calling you up. How did that happen? In the early days, a good friend of mine, Scott Bryson, um, was a you know, bit of a mentor. And, and so Scott is now vice chair of Bank of Montreal. At the time, he was a politician, a cabinet minister in Trudeau's uh, you know, government. He had discussions with me about sort of my path and where, where I was headed. And he convinced me, look, I think you can do it here. But raising a private equity from, from scratch is very difficult, as you can imagine. What you really need is sponsors. And, and you know, it was fortunate in a way that Clark was public. Because you know the performance was out there, it was publicly known. I didn't have any issue with being able to sort of talk about what we'd done in our track record. And so, Scott Bryson was really the guy that introduced me to the families. I didn't have any pre-existing relationship. He knew me. He kind of vetted the idea, so I went through it with him. Got him convinced that it made sense, and then you know ultimately he came on board. He was our founding chairman, so he he brought me to Donald Sobey's house, sat me down on Donald's couch, and gave me an opportunity to make the pitch. And he did the same thing with Scott McCain in, in Toronto in their offices on uh, St. Clair, Young and St. Clair. Same thing with Rob Sobey here in, in Halifax. So really just an opportunity to have an audience with people. And, and you know, the pressure was on me to convince them that it was, first of all, you know, a good investment opportunity. And, and you know, I really believe that. I still believe that, you know, the lower mid-market, and you know this salon from, you know, from your work, if, if, if you're buying a business, you're buying a stream of cash flows. And if you're operating in a relatively uncompetitive environment and you're buying a business that you can grow and build and develop, there's a lot of reasons why you can, you know, create value, build value in that, in that process. And so I was delivering a message that I really believed and, and I still believe it and, and give them the opportunity to have access to an asset class that it's getting easier to access, but, you know, 10 years ago, it was relatively difficult to get exposure to this. So if you can convince someone that this is a worthwhile asset class to invest in, then the next step is relatively easy. We had a, you know, I knew I could build a team and I knew I had deal flow. And I knew we had the ability to, to sort of give them exposure to this. For them, it was, I think, a diversification play. So both families have their legacy businesses. They're invested in real estate, lots of other classes of assets. This is something I think that they saw as an opportunity to round out their portfolio and, 
I mean, if you were to talk to either of them now, I think what they would say is that it's been more than that. They've had fun along the way. They've gotten to know the businesses. They've sort of seen the challenges and the successes that we've had, and they've become part of it. So it's been a wonderful relationship we've had with, you know, with Scott McCain and Rob Sobey. And Donald Sobey passed away a couple of years ago, but, we, you know, he was a big part of uh, C4 as well. So why not continue with that model? Why did you want to expand and, and, and launch a more traditional uh, PE fund? I mean, even though the families are, you know, they're billionaire families, the plan was always a diversification play. And so what we recognized from the start was that if we were successful, if this thing really grew and developed, we would reach a point where it made sense to bring in other investors. And so I talked about setting up a $160 million fund, 40 of that comes from our original investors. And so what they've recognized is, look, this thing has become big and successful. You know, we can't fund this all of it, 100% of it forever. It doesn't make sense for us to do that. We, we, you know, we want to continue to support it and invest in it, but we're at a point where it makes sense to bring in other investors. And what we've learned, you know, we've been very fortunate. We have, you know, institutional investors, five or six, you know, six uh, very credible, well-established institutional investors. You know, some of them are public, Bank of Montreal, uh, CIBC, uh, EDC. We've got others that'll be announced in our next closing, but we also have a lot of high net worth individuals, family offices, entrepreneurs that have invested with us from across Canada. And what we've started to realize is that they're providing more than capital. We're getting advice from them. They're opening doors. They're giving us deal flow. And so that value that we got, you know, over the last 10 years from the two founding families that, that invested in C4 is being amplified. And it's an exciting time for us. I mean, we never, I mean, we knew that there would be benefits from bringing in new people into the structure, especially, you know, in entrepreneurs and families that own businesses, but it's been much more helpful and the, the in fact, it's been more profound than we ever could have expected, honestly. Curious, where the name come from? The name. So that was one of the most frustrating things early on. We uh, we had a really hard time. I don't know if you've been through this, and you know, you guys. I can't with firepower. firepower. Yeah. Forever. You know, and and all the good names are taken. So you know, you think of Fortress. You know, they're all taken. One of uh, so I have two partners in C Fort, Matt Towns and Steve Denton. They were senior executives at Clark. So Matt was the vice president at Clark. Stephen was a director of research. They came over with me and they were sort of co-founders in Seaford as well. Uh, we struggled with that. And, um, you know, there's a the Citadel in Halifax is is a fortress. It, um, you know, it's it's structured in a kind of a unique way. It's, a, it's called a star fort. It's because of the shape of it. So our initial name was Star Fort. And we went to Scott McCain with that. And we said, yeah, we think we've got a name. And he said, that's an awful name. He said, if that's what you call it, I'm out. He said that that's he says like something from this is a science fiction movie star for he said, I don't like it. So he said, Oh, what the hell do we do now? We went back to the drawing board. Matt Towns suggested, well, Scott McCain owns a major junior hockey team called the Sea Dogs. He's very fond of that franchise. Why don't we call it Seafort? So we floated that balloon out there. Everybody liked that. So that's sort of the Oh, it's you know how people call them names is always a funny story because I, I agree with you. It's it's really, really difficult. You know, people don't people don't understand. It's not just about you wanting a certain name. It's uh, is it available? And more often than not, it's not. So that's really funny. You had mentioned, you know, at the beginning that you partner with entrepreneurs. I hear a lot of private equity firms say that. What does that mean to you to partner with an entrepreneur? 
you know, it, it, so we often use the word majority ownership, but we don't talk about control. And, and that's very deliberate because we don't have control over these investments. We share control with our partners. So C4 likes to own anywhere from sort of 55 to 90% of the equity of an investment. We want the balance to be held by senior executives, people that are active in the business and adding value. And then one of the first discussions we have before we even make an investment is let's look at a shareholders agreement. So what is, you know, your authority going to look like? What are your, you know, what are the meets and bounds of where you can make decision decisions? What do you need to come back to us for? And we lay it all out in advance so that everybody understands what the, what the approach is going to be. And that's been a very successful thing because we've given our operating partners lots of autonomy. There's times where we get involved, you know, financing, acquisitions, major strategic uh, events, major CapEx events. So we want to understand what's going on. We want to get involved give our support and, and our advice where we can. Um, but on a day-to-day -day basis, our partners are running the business and we're there to support them and help them succeed. So, you know, partnership means you've got shared alignment through the uh, common equity ownership that we have. We always have a single class of shares. So we're in exactly the same position as them. Big decisions require us to come together and agree. And then, you know, for day-to-day -day operations, we trust them and we empower them. And, you know, they're, they're our operating partners. And, that, that's our approach. I know different private equity firms have different approaches and some, you know, platinum equity in the US, I think their tagline is M&A and O, mergers and acquisitions and operations. And they'll take a Harvard grad or an MIT grad and they'll drop them into a business and they'll run it, right? We don't do that. We, we only invest in a business when we've identified a skilled operator that's an entrepreneur that wants to, to be a C4 operating partner. I'm going to switch gears completely because it's stuck in the back of my head. You, you had mentioned earlier that you, know, you went to the guidance counselor and you said, you know, where's, where can I make the most amount of money? It's a bit of a loaded question, but, you know, now looking back at it and, and having experience that you have, is money a good motivator? And, you know, if so, or if not, you know, why? And then what are other things that you've found in your life to be great motivators for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I think in this industry, you tend to see a lot of competitive types and people that like to win. And I'm certainly no different from that. Um, you know, money is often a marker, whether that's fair or not for, for how you've done, but it, it hasn't been my focus, quite honestly. And, you know, in the last several years, I want the businesses to grow and, and deliver profitable returns. I want to see strong returns for our investors and for, especially for our new investors in the new fund. But I'm not focused on my own, you know, wealth in the way that I thought I would as an 18 year old, you know, uh, uh, aspiring to get into business. But I think, you know, the common factor in, in all of the strategies that we're developing across all of our portfolios is that you want to drive success for others. And so nothing gives us greater pleasure than we've got a, an operating partner. You know, we started a business, one of our portfolio companies, we started a business, they had three and a half, four million dollars of EBITDA. You know, it's gone on to be 20 times, more than 20 times that now because we've grown and, and those people have done very well. So, I mean, it, it's... Uh, there's, there's a lot of truth in the fact that, you know, you, you, you share in success and that's more uh, meaningful than, than, than sort of having your own personal success. So, I mean, it, it, I'm not going to lie. We, we do uh, strive to do well and, and to generate good personal returns, but really it's, it's about have, building a successful firm, building a successful track record and, and demonstrating that, uh, that your results are, are appropriate and, and in keeping with what your investors' goals and expectations are. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, the reason I asked you that is because I didn't want, you know, some young individual, you know, listening to this to think that, you know, money unto itself is a good motivator because I find it's not. 
I, I and I agree with you completely that it, it I look at it as chips on the table and I love winning. So it is a it is a bit of a scorecard, but uh, it's not what motivates me. You know, like like you, I, I I love building stuff. I love building value. Like that's fun because that's the process is the life. The outcome is just an outcome. Yeah, and and you know, you look back at big sort of pivotal moments in your career, and the the two biggest ones for me were when I left you know Skadden Arps to to join Clark, and the second was when I left Clark to start Seafort. And in both of those cases, I took a huge pay cut, right? Like very, very meaningful as a percentage. And so, you know, my wife and others would say, well, like, why would you, what are you doing? Why would you do that? And if I was short-term focused and really just thinking about, you know, my paycheck, I would still be practicing in a glass tower in Toronto and, and probably would have had a great life and experience as well, but I would have missed all these other fun things that I've done. So, you, you know, you, it's important to try to aspire to, to success and to wealth, but you can't be short-term in your thinking. So just a couple more questions for you. East Coast, you know, I think that a lot, I find that a lot of East Coast firms have a bit of a complex and, you know, they, 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 they kind of view themselves as being ignored. And, you know, people say, you know, you can't build big businesses out there. You know, it, I think it's very untrue, as you mentioned, Sobeys and McCain. But what have you learned about, you know, the East Coast and, and you know, for, for us Torontonians, you know, what are we overlooking? You know, I think the East Coast is changing like the rest of Canada. You know, when I first moved here, I think, you know, things were a little bit less developed in terms of investments and private equity. I think, you know, Toronto is maybe a little bit behind New York. Halifax is a little bit behind Toronto in some ways, not not in every way. But, you know, just to give you an example, when I was at Clark, there was a freight business that we were interested in. And I somehow connected with the owner and operator of that business. And I said, like, we'd love to buy your business if you ever think about selling it, would you give me a call? And, um, you know, we'll have a discussion. Maybe two years later, I saw a press release that he had sold it to a large, larger trucking firm in, in, in Nova Scotia. So I called him and said, well, weren't you curious about what we, maybe we would have paid more? And he said, no, he said, I said, I promised uh, this gentleman 10 years ago that he'd sell him my business and I don't know you and I don't really like you. So I didn't really want to sell you my business. And, you know, that kind of thing I think was common because you know, business was conducted on a trust basis. People were suspicious of outsiders. They were suspicious of advisors and processes. And I think even in the 10 years, 15 years, actually, that I've been here, things have changed. So, you know, people are aware of private equity. They're aware of the value that an advisor can bring. They understand, you know, that there's no shame in selling your business. And so, you know, I think if you went back maybe 30 years in Ontario, you would have seen a similar sort of experience with people looking to sell their business. And, and now I think, you know, we're at a point where, you know, everyone knows someone that's sold a business to a private equity firm or has run a process or has engaged in an advisor. And so I think we're seeing Nova Scotia sort of develop, capital markets are developing, but it is still a little bit behind. So if you're looking to do business in Nova Scotia, I think you need to demonstrate some level of commitment. I think you need to work at to building you know, a relationship with people and building trust coming from Toronto, coming from a big urban center, at least in the, in the rural areas in Nova Scotia. And there's a lot of great businesses outside of Halifax. That's still a little bit of a barrier, but it's not nearly the barrier that it was 10 years ago. So when I ask you the last question is to put on you a bit of a crystal ball, what, what do you what do you think of the future of MA? I mean, you know, you talk about lower mid market still being really excited about it. And I totally agree with you. You know, unlike the, you know, the large, you know, the large PE space where multiples have gone insane, you know, ours, ours have re- remained stable, but still up. I think we're in for a massive correction. That's that's my opinion, just from a supply and demand curve perspective. There can be a glutton of supply of of, uh, of good companies and that have to transition, you know, that don't have you know well thought out succession plans. 
coming into the market over the next 10 years? That's my view. What's what's your overarching kind of view and where do you lean as it relates to what the future is? You know, I think in our industry, it's a, it's a war for talent. You know, the capital is available it, and where you really differentiate, where you build value is by attracting great managers, great operating partners. And when you're operating a small, medium-sized business, you're at a disadvantage because you don't have the scale to offer a big salary. You don't have the scale to provide support. And so our challenge, the best thing that we can do to build value is to come up with creative ways to identify and recruit and incentivize and retain top talent. And I think, you know, we've got a couple of strategies that have been successful. You know, you empower them, you give them an opportunity for outsized returns if things go really well. And so you look for people like you, like me, that are willing to take a risk on themselves and are, and are willing to think long-term. And if you can do that, you can build real value. And so I think in the lower mid-market, the prices are better in terms of buying cash flows. The opportunities are more numerous. There's more businesses in that size range. But getting talented executives into the seat and, and finding a person and convincing him or, him or her to join you and, and really drive the business is the biggest challenge. And so that's what we focus on every day is trying to get the best people to, to work with us in, in our portfolio of companies. If you can do that, you're going to have success because the other factors are all lined up. Yeah, no. Well said. Well said. Well, Rob, I really appreciate your time. You know, for those that uh, would like to connect with you, uh, what's the best way to do it? You know, obviously, there'll, there'll be some business owners that that uh, you know, like like what they hear and are looking for the right partner. I mean, I'd always suggest they call me first before you, but <laughs> they can call you directly if they'd like. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, there there are ways via our website C4 Capital. If you search C4 Capital Halifax on, on Google, you'll be able to find our website. You can connect through our info account. You know, we'd love to talk to business owners or people that are looking to join. You know, and, and help us build a portfolio company. Our size range is really businesses. We're focused on four to eight million dollars of EBITDA in manufacturing, equipment service, business services, and value-added distribution anywhere in Canada. So appreciate that, Alon. We would love to hear from business owners or, or executives that think they might be able to sort of partner with us. Great. Well, thanks, Rob. And until next time. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.